writing this book was just a whole playground of what can I put in a bagel. It's almost comical the way you open the pantry and go, hmm, what would happen if I put that in a bagel? Or, you know, just thinking about sandwich possibilities or combinations. It was, it was tremendous fun. listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Senior Editor Anna Hiesel, here with Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard. On today's episode, Anna's talking to Kathy Barrow, the author of Bagel, Schmears, and a Nice Piece of Fish. Kathy's a longtime food writer and author, and her newest book really makes a strong case for why we should all be making more bagels at home. Once you have a couple of the really important ingredients... You can just throw together the dough in the evening while you're making your dinner, let it rest overnight, and then you get these beautiful, warm, fresh bagels in the morning. We talked about what makes a perfect bagel in her mind, some dream schmear scenarios, and why everyone should have a good sturgeon guy. Yeah, Anna, I'm definitely team nice piece of fish. Here's Anna talking to Kathy. Welcome to the Taste Podcast, Kathy. Thank you so much. Really happy to be here. So you are the author of many cookbooks, most recently Bagels, Schmears, and a Nice Piece of Fish. Correct. How did you get into making your own bagels? I had long (laughs) desired a home-cooked bagel. I lived in bagel deserts for so many years that I just knew that I could make it at home somehow. I actually carried water back from New York once to see if that would make a difference. Um, I I mean, I've tried everything, but it wasn't until I read a a recipe in the Washington Post that said high gluten flour is the real difference. And it was like, you know, ding, 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 ding. And, And as soon as I got my hands on some high gluten flour and tried it, I said, well, this is it. This is what makes a bagel a bagel. And um, I, get, I mean, it's always been one of my favorite foods. So, of course, I wanted to make it at home. There is, I've noticed sort of like a pandemic trend of DIY bagels, too, because, first of all, a lot of people I know have been moving out of the big cities that they lived in for a long time. A lot of close friends from New York moved away from the city. Um, so a lot of people sort of missing their usual neighborhood bagel spot. Absolutely. I mean, we've been saying that bagels are the new sourdough. You know, we did the sourdough thing at the beginning, but now we're a little further along and people want something new. Bagels are it. Definitely. And there's also kind of this amazing possibility when you're making them at home to experiment with your own flavors and mix-ins and toppings. My friend Kate Ray, who's a chef and writer, uh, started making bagels over the pandemic and started experimenting with seasoning them with ramen flavoring packets, which was really great. My local pizza place made some sourdough bagels. Um, So there's like a lot of possibilities when you're making them at home. Was there something you wanted to see in a bagel, like either in terms of the toppings or flavorings that you just like weren't finding at actual bakeries? I really wanted that crispy exterior 
crust and the soft and tender chew. Uh, that, I mean, that is impossible to get from a bagel from the grocery store or, you know, one of the national chains. The really great chewy, crispy, shiny exterior was what I was going for all the time. And now that I've, you know, have the skill and the technique and the right um, ingredients, writing this book was just a, a whole playground of what can I put in a bagel? It, it's almost comical the way you open the pantry and go, hmm, what would happen if I put that in a bagel? Or, you know, just thinking about sandwich possibilities or combinations. It was, it was tremendous fun. I had a lot of fun doing it. I mean, that brings up one of the best parts of getting a bagel from a bagel bakery in New York, which is often they're fresh straight from the oven. And so like that texture, that crusty exterior has so much to do with just like the actual freshness too. I was really lucky. I, I got a chance to talk to a terrific bagel baker in Asheville, North Carolina, and we were talking about how to store bagels. Because I said, you know, there's that crispy moment when they first come out and every moment after that, like driving your car off the new car lot, you know, every moment after that, it's no longer a great bagel. And he told me that you take the bagel and within four hours, just put it right in the freezer. And then when you want to reconstitute it, you put it in the oven at 350 for 10 minutes, just right on the rack and it's like a new bagel. It's the most amazing thing. So it's like I have a fresh bagel every single morning. That's such a good tip. Are you pro or against uh, toasting bagels? I don't want to harsh anybody's yum. I'm not a toaster and my husband is. So all's well in our household. Okay, you're not looking to make any enemies. <laughs> not at all, particularly with the man I share this house with. That's fair. That's wise. <laughs> What else, other than like sort of the texture and the crustiness, what defines a perfect bagel to you? Like size, texture, crumb, like what are you looking for usually? I definitely have very strong opinions about size. I went through a lot of different um, gymnastics to get the recipe to give me just six bagels because I don't want eight. I, I want six because they fit on a quarter sheet pan and that pan fits in your refrigerator easily and six go into the oven in one batch. So the whole thing just made sense to get it scaled to half dozen. Uh, I guess that for me was critical. And so I started out with a 95 gram bagel which was actually, it, it reminded me of the size of the bagel that we got when we were kids. It was really just the size of your palm, much smaller than what you see these days. As I worked through the math to try to get a recipe with an easy measurement for yeast, like a, a teaspoon, not three quarters or six, you know, seven eighths or something, but a teaspoon. So I got to that and the six yield I had to get to 110 grams per bagel. And that still seems like a very reasonable size. Uh, I mean, I have seen some really giant bagels and they're silly. They get bigger every year, it seems like. I love the scale of six per batch because I've made bagels at home in the past and it's just like you wind up with a really delicious, perfect bagel straight out of the oven 
And then you're like, what am I going to do with the 20 others that I have here? <laughs> Unless you're having a party, but a lot of people aren't really having parties right now during COVID. Yeah, six is just the right amount for any size household, actually, you know, two or four people. And because they're so easy to make, I'm, I'm now, it takes me 20 minutes from start to finish, including washing the dishes to make bagels, put them on the baking sheet and put them into the refrigerator for overnight rise. And if you can do that in 20 minutes, why make a large batch so that you then have to eat stale? You just make it frequently. Totally. I mean, it's like not that much more of a time investment than making pancakes in the morning. Not at all. Yeah. And I have timed arrangements in the book. Like if you want to bake these in the morning, make them at this time at night and let them rise and then get up at this hour and you can have your bagels by 7.30 or whatever. Or if you're not an early morning person, make your bagels after you've had your coffee refrigerate them all day, bake them at night, and have them in the morning. So, you know, I have it all worked out. It's perfect. Do people need a stand mixer to make bagels at home? They do. It's a very strong dough. I mean, sure, you could do it. I'm sure that in the years before stand mixers, lots of people made bagels, but it is a very strong dough, and you have to knead it for a long time to build the gluten and build that exterior crust and all the potential in the bagel. So yeah, a stand mixer really is helpful. Let's talk about some of the ingredients that people that are really worth seeking out also. I mean, you you mentioned the high gluten flour. Um, what, what will a bagel be like if you make it with all purpose instead of that high gluten flour? What's the main difference? You'll miss the exterior crust and you won't get the kind of chew. Uh, but the beauty of this is that you can buy a product called Vital Wheat Gluten. And it's widely available. You can get it online. You can get it in health food stores or, I mean, Whole Foods carries it. Bob's makes it available a lot of places. Um, It's a small package. You keep it in the pantry. You add a tablespoon to, I can't remember, is it a cup maybe? Uh, Anyway, it's some easy measurement. You just add it to the all-purpose flour and it boosts the Uh, protein level. And so then you have your own high gluten flour ready to go. That's amazing. I know exactly which grocery store in my neighborhood to get vital wheat gluten at. So this is great news. What about the... It's really good to know because the high gluten flour is, you know, most easily available through King Arthur and mail order. And, you know, that's a lot to go through. Um, When I was testing, I was buying 50 pound bags from restaurant supply but again, it's not like, you, and I don't keep them around now that I'm not testing anymore. So that vital wheat gluten can make all the difference in just keeping your pantry streamlined. Definitely. What about the sweetener that you use? You talk about sort of like getting that signature bagel flavor. Yeah, it's that's malt. That, and, and you may not recognize it when you're smelling it, but the malt is what will make your kitchen smell like the corner bakery. Um, and there are two ways to get that. One is through barley malt syrup, which is the most um, infuriating ingredient I've ever worked with. It is insanely sticky. It, If you uh, pour it into your mixer while it's going, it spits and spins around. It's, it's yeah, very annoying. Um, but 
It's really delicious. Uh, and so I will use the barley malt syrup measured at 21 grams, which means that you can pour it into your bowl when it's on the scale and not have to dirty a lot of other things. And if it's very cold, you pour it slowly and you can snip it with scissors. So these are my tricks for dealing with this infuriating ingredient. Now, a couple of my testers were just having nothing to do with barley malt syrup. One experience and they were done. And so they turned to maple syrup and they're very happy. Oh, that's a great workaround because many of us just have a bottle of maple syrup in the fridge ready to go. Exactly. Yeah. And you can use honey, but both maple syrup and honey impart a flavor and don't have that malty undertone. It's not going to change how delicious the bagel is. It just changes the flavor a little bit. When you did actually bring water back from New York to your home to experiment with, did you notice any difference? Not one bit. So <laughs> you, think, you think that the New York water thing is kind of a, a myth? I do. Maybe they just like really have a great recipe. The people who claim to be tapping into that New York, you know, something. I think it's possible, although I have to tell you that the nugget that got me interested in thinking about bagels as a book came uh, 11 years ago when I was in New York doing um, a promotional uh, series for my first book, The Preserving Book, and I was doing the Martha Stewart radio show. And Lucinda Scala Quinn interviewed me, and we were just chatting about things. And she said, oh, you know, Martha just got back from Detroit. And she said she had the best bagel she ever had in her life in Detroit. I thought, well, that's really fascinating. I, I'm from uh, Northwestern Ohio, so it's you know fairly close. And a couple years later, my husband and I went to Detroit and darned if those weren't like the best bagels I'd ever had. Um, sadly, that shop is closed now. But they were really good. And that started to break the myth down for me. When you do visit New York, do you have favorite appetizing shops, bagel bakeries? Like where's your favorite place to get a bagel? And what's your order usually? I have always loved Russ and Daughters. Who doesn't? It's just classic. But depending on what part of town I'm in, I often I'll go to Black Seed Bagels. I think that's a really good bagel. They're wood-fired. They're more Montreal-style seeds top and bottom. They have some really great sandwiches. So those are my two favorite New York spots. My order as a rule is an everything bagel with um, cream cheese, lox, chive cheese usually, tomato, yeah, the whole thing. Classic. I love it. Your book, in addition to um, getting into all of these techniques for baking bagels, you also tackle pickling at home, you tackle curing your own locks at home, and cream cheese, DIY cream cheese, and making all of the exciting mix-ins. What were you sort of looking for in a cream cheese that you couldn't get at one of those, like, you know, refrigerator cases in a bagel shop? No stabilizers. That would be my first goal. Um, I think that I can always taste that kind of gluey thing that makes um, commercial whipped cream cheeses smooth. And I don't like it. Um, so I wanted more tang, which is why 
The base for all the schmears has some sour cream and some lemon beaten into the cream cheese before you start with the add-ins. I, I guess I felt like the schmear chapter was just so much fun. I had the best time thinking up ways to doctor up your cream cheese to achieve some dream. Uh, cannoli cream cheese. I mean, seriously, that is good with these little mini chocolate chips and little pieces of candied orange peel. And that one is like seriously yummy. Uh, the hot honey and Marcona almond one hits all the right buttons. Yeah, it's salty, sweet, and spicy, and it's great. But mostly I wanted the texture to be there. I I feel that a lot of people will take up this book with the um, ambition to make bagels, but I hope that they'll just decide to try a few schmears along the way while they're getting their their uh, strength up for the bagel making. I hope so too. There was an apricot schmear that sort of caught my eye. It looked like something With coconut and thyme. Yeah, just savory, sweet. Looks awesome. The other thing that I have been wanting to do at home forever, and your book is going to inspire me, is to cure my own locks. And you have a few different techniques, a beet locks recipe, a sort of classic one. When people are buying a piece of salmon to cure at home, is there something in particular they should be looking for in terms of the cut or the quality or anything else? I buy... um Locally, we have a, a really good fish department at a small grocery store here, and I will buy a center cut of um, farm-raised organic salmon. I want it to be fatty. I want to see some white streaks in it. That coho or those like really bright red salmons that don't have much fat in them are not going to cure into a nice piece of lox. Skin on. Skin on. And how, like, what sort of quantity can you do this with? Should it always be, like, a sort of large piece of salmon? No, can there's you customize no need it? for that. The thing to remember is that if it's too small, it's going to be hard to slice because you need to slice on a slight angle and with a flexible knife so that it's nice and thin. So I usually will start with a pound of salmon and cure that, and you'll lose about 30% of the weight through the cure. And so now you're down to about three quarters of a pound, and you can slice it and put it in your freezer in four ounce packages and just take it out like that. That's such a good tip. The book has so many amazing DIYs for all of these schmears and toppings for bagels, but are there any particular accoutrements, smoked fish, particular schmears at particular places that you like actually just want to go to a restaurant to order? <laughs> In the fish department, particularly. I mean, there are some fish you can cure at home, like salmon. You can kipper or hot smoke salmon at home. Those, that's really very easy. Um, you can make smoked whitefish salad at home if you can find a whitefish. Uh, that's all very achievable. Would I try to cure or smoke sturgeon or sable probably not i'm not i'm not up for pickling herring because every recipe i've seen sort of starts 
get 50 pounds of herring. And like, you know, what am I going to do with that? Um, I'm sure I could adjust it. But it, those are just things I'm not up for. And so when I really want a beautiful fish platter, and if you look in the book, there's an extraordinary picture of a fish platter. It's just yummy. And I do want to have access to sable and sturgeon and herring. And I'll order those either from our deli down in DC and go get it or from Russ and Daughters or another online purveyor. Yeah, I have bought a whole smoked whitefish before and it's sort of a small enough fish that you can manage, but buying like huge fresh fish to smoke at home seems like a, a bit of a hurdle. Yeah, I mean, a whitefish is usually a pound and a half or two pounds. And once you've boned it, you know, taken off the head and the tail, you've got a pound plus to deal with. And so if you're having a party, that's not that much smoked whitefish salad. Last question I just wanted to ask. We ask a lot of our podcast guests this. What's a dream cookbook that you haven't written yet, but that you would like to see in the world someday? You don't you don't have to give away too many trade secrets, but just, you know, what's what's a book that you're you're dying to see in the world? It's a it's a hard question because there are a lot of cookbooks right now, right? And I'm trying so hard to read as many as I possibly can. But I have to say the ones that give me the most joy are the ones that have a lot of personal stories and give me a sense of who that person is. I'm waiting for Samin's next cookbook with bated breath. I really can't wait to see what she's up to. So I'll just leave it at that, that Samin can do no, no uh, wrong. And her next cookbook is already in my mind pre-ordered, even though it's not available yet. I'll second that. Kathy Barrow, thank you so much for being on the Taste Podcast. It was a delight. Thank you, Anna. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Heasel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.